0: The sermon text for today is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Listen as I read God's word. Life worthy of the gospel. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one of the Spirit, striving together as one for faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved, and by God. For that has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Here ends the reading. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we come to your word this morning with expectation. Lord, we come with expectation, believing that you desire to meet us, believing that you know every single one of us more intimately than we know ourselves. You know the difficulties, the challenges, the pains, the hurts. You know the joys. You know the The things that we are celebrating, you know all the things that are going well. You know everything, and Lord, in the midst of all of those circumstances, no matter what they are, you desire to meet us. And so we come with expectation to this passage of scripture, and we look at this, these verses that talk about suffering and opposition because of our faith in Christ, and we ask that you, Lord, would give us wisdom, that you would give us a deepened understanding of the goodness of the gospel as well as a increased awareness of the gift of suffering and opposition. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. There are some parts of the Bible that are more inspiring than others. As followers of Jesus, we do believe that all scripture, everything in this book is inspired by God. And at the same time, we also know that not every part of the Bible is equally as inspiring to us. So you maybe have uh, seen certain verses that get used often in a variety of different contexts, whether that's you see it on a mug or you see it on a journal cover or you see it uh, on a card that you would send to someone. You may see a piece of artwork that someone displays in their home or in their office at work. And there's a handful of passages that are the the usual ones, passages like Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you see that oftentimes on pieces of art in someone's home. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11 gets used all the time around graduations from high school or college. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans not to bring harm to you, but to prosper you, to give you a hope in a future. Passages like Philippians 4, verse 13, which we're going to look at in a number of weeks, that says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And there's lots of other verses like this, but there are many verses in the Bible that are uh, pretty inspiring, that are pretty motivating for us, and so they get used in that kind of a way. And then there are other verses that just simply don't make the cut. <laughs> right? There are verses that when uh, someone's trying to decide what to put on their, on their T-shirt, they just, they just get left on the shop room floor. We get to look at one of those passages here today, one of those passages that you will never find uh, presented as an inspirational quote, where Paul says, it has been granted to you not only to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for him. If you've been around Elmwood for any length of time, you know that we uh, believe that the passages of the Bible that are hard, the passages of the Bible that seem most counterintuitive to us. The passages of the Bible that would seem to uh, sort of butt heads with what we would uh, maybe think would be true. Those passages that are most uncomfortable for us are the ones where we ought to be spending the most time. We ought to be giving special attention to those passages. Because there are treasures that exist in those hard passages that we will never come to uncover if we just move on to things that seem more enjoyable on the surface. We wouldn't naturally gravitate towards going to passages like this that talk about suffering and opposition. We don't naturally gravitate towards those passages, which is why we need to spend time looking at them. Because in those passages, we see the goodness and the mercy and the grace and the love of God for us. And so we're going to look at this passage here today, and we're going to be talking about citizenship and suffering based on this passage here today. And we're going to see that these two things, this citizenship In the kingdom of God and suffering and experiencing opposition, those two things are very, very closely linked together. So we look first at verse 27 where Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now it may not seem like it to us initially, but this verse is key to us understanding the entire book of Philippians. I didn't know this until I was actually looking more carefully at this, but this is the first command that Paul gives in the book of Philippians. He spent almost 25% of the letter talking about other things, and then the first command he gives is this command, this sort of umbrella blanket command, to live your life, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, uh, if you are familiar with Paul's letters that he's written in the New Testament, he uses this language uh, often, where he says... uh, Live a life worthy of the gospel. And I think sort of conceptually, we can all understand kind of what he's getting at here. Okay, we should live our lives in line with the truths of the gospel. That what is true about God ought to direct how we live our lives. There's, some interesting, there's an interesting word that Paul uses here that I think is important enough for us to spend a little bit of time looking at it. Because it helps us really get an understanding of what, it, what Paul means when he says conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Okay, so the the Greek word for city is the word polis. You're familiar with this whether you know it or not because we live near a big city called Minneapolis. So the word mini is the Sioux word for water and the word polis is the Greek word for city. And so it's city of water or city on the water, something like that. The word that Paul uses here that's translated in our English translations as conduct yourselves is actually the Greek word polis. It's the verb form of the word polis or city, which means that literally translated, Paul's instructing his listeners to live as citizens, to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Here's a couple different ways this could be translated that help sort of bring out the idea of citizenship here. So you could translate this verse, let your life as citizens be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You could translate it. Behave as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The Christian Standard Bible is one of the more uh, well-known modern English translations that I think does the best job of getting across this aspect of citizenship. The CSB puts it like this. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So you can clearly see the idea of citizenship that is tied into this. Now here's why this is important. Remember that Paul is writing this letter to the church in this Roman colony of Philippi. And as a Roman colony, Philippi was not just any old city in the sort of general Roman empire. As a Roman colony, the city of Philippi was established as an outpost of the city of Rome itself. It was established as an extension of Rome itself in that part of the world. So those who lived in the city of Philippi... Their citizenship in Philippi meant that they were also simultaneously citizens in the city of Rome, the mothership. And so being a Roman citizen was a highly valued thing, and being a citizen in the city of Philippi, of course, came with lots of benefits. You get all the benefits of living as a citizen in the city of Rome, and it, of course, comes with all the expectations, the expectation that you will live in line with the values and the beliefs And the ethos and the culture of the city of Rome. And that you will, in the city of Philippi, you will promote the Roman way of life. And so it was a very good thing for most people to have the status as citizens of Rome. Citizenship in Rome was highly sought after. This was a source of honor and dignity. This was a deep part of a person's identity, that they are a citizen of Rome. And Paul writes to them and says, live as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul writes to them knowing that their citizenship in Rome is at times going to come into conflict with their citizenship in the kingdom of God. He knows that there will be times where when they live by the beliefs and the values of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, they will come in conflict with, there will be sort of a butting of heads between those values, their citizenship in heaven, and their citizenship in Rome. He knows that, and so he writes to them. And everything in this letter, every other command that Paul gives is based on, it flows out of this command to live as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul knows that there's going to be this collision, and so his instruction to them, you could sort of put it broadly like this, Paul writes to them and says, remember where your true citizenship lies. Never forget where your true citizenship lies. You may be citizens of the city of Rome, you may be citizens in Philippi, and that's great. He's not saying you shouldn't be citizens in Philippi. He's saying remember where your true citizenship lies. Ultimately, you are first and foremost citizens of heaven, you are citizens of the kingdom of God, not first and foremost citizens of Rome. And when those two citizenships come into conflict, your citizenship in heaven overrides your citizenship in the kingdom of Rome, in the kingdom of Caesar. So this is his instruction, remember where your citizenship lies. And of course, our setting is vastly different from their setting in the first century, uh, but we still also need to be reminded we also need to be reminded of where our true citizenship is and let that influence and inform the way we live. And as we look at the rest of these verses here, we see Paul showing us, he gives us a picture of what it looks like when we actually live in line with where our true citizenship is, when we remember where our true citizenship is. And so the sort of big idea you can take home for today is this, when we remember where our true citizenship lies, we will receive suffering and opposition as a gift. Yes, thanks. (laughs) When we remember where our true citizenship lies, we will receive suffering and opposition as a gift. He says, conduct yourselves, live as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Did you hear what Paul just said about suffering and opposition? It has been granted to you. The the root of that verb is the word grace. Grace it has been graced to you. It has been given to you as an act of God's grace that you should not only believe in him, but that you should suffer for him. And just notice how Paul ties together the idea of salvation and the idea of suffering. So he says, it's been gifted to you. It's been given to you as a gift that you should believe in him. And all of us who are followers of Jesus would say, Yes, my salvation is entirely a gift from God. It's not based on my moral achievement. It's not because I'm somehow spiritually superior to anybody else. No, I am saved simply because God chose to pour out his mercy and his grace on me in measures that I can never even begin to understand or comprehend. And so our salvation is entirely a gift. And as we are reminded of our salvation and the gift of God, our hearts well up in thanksgiving, don't they? They well up in praise that God would be so generous to us, that God would be so kind to us, that He would give us such an inexhaustible, inexpressible, invaluable gift of giving us His Son and bringing us salvation when we didn't deserve it. Our hearts well up in thanksgiving and praise. Do we realize what Paul is saying in this verse? What he's saying is that our suffering is not less of a gift than our salvation. It has been given to you as a gift, not only to believe in him, not only to just be saved, but also to suffer for him. That is given to you as a gift, and it's held up right next to our salvation. God has given you the gift of salvation. He's also given you the gift of suffering, of experiencing opposition and suffering because of your faith in Christ. Now, in Acts chapter 16, we get a glimpse of what kind of suffering and opposition they faced. We've gone back to Acts 16 a number of times during the series because it tells us about the birth of this church in Philippi. And what we see is that Paul is there in Philippi with his uh, colleague Silas, and they're going about, they're proclaiming the message of the gospel, and as they're going about doing their ministry, they encounter this girl who's a slave girl. She's a slave girl, she's oppressed by a demon, which enables her to predict the future. And her owners are exploiting her for profit. They know that she has this special ability, and so they use her to make a whole lot of money. So she's oppressed spiritually by the demon, and she's oppressed circumstantially, structurally by her owners. And then she's sort of heckling Paul and Silas. She's given them a hard time. She's following them around, shouting stuff out and kind of irritating them. And Paul turns around and he drives the demon out of her, which made her owners very upset because all the money that came from her being able to tell the future is now out the window. So that she's been liberated, given a spiritual liberation. She's also been liberated from the oppression of these people who no longer have a reason to oppress her in the same way because she can't tell the future because she doesn't have a demon anymore. And they're so furious at Paul that they drag him out into the middle of the city. They bring him before the city officials, before the magistrates, and they sort of whip up this little mob, and they bring him out in front of the people. And this is their accusation. Verse 20 of Acts chapter 16, They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept and practice. So you see the essence of their complaint is that these men are Jews and they are disrupting the Roman way of life. There's a way we do things here in Rome. There are customs we have. There are values and beliefs that we live by. And here come these Jews who are announcing that there's a different Messiah, a different Lord, a different uh, Caesar, master over the people, that's Jesus, and they're doing all these things that are unlawful according to Roman practice. And so in the minds of those people who live in the city of Philippi, the beliefs and the values of the city of Rome must be protected at all costs. The Roman way of life must be protected. And so you see, Paul and Silas are living by the value system of God's kingdom they're living out their citizenship in the kingdom of God by serving and loving people well. And then that comes in conflict with the value system of the kingdom of Rome. And so they experience this opposition. They're thrown into prison, they're beaten, they're publicly humiliated, they're put in stocks, which is a form of mild torture. And they experience this clear opposition because of their faith in Christ. So that's what Paul and Silas experienced. And you know that as soon as Paul and Silas left, and these group of believers continues to live by the value system of God's kingdom, as they remember where their true citizenship lies, those church members in the city of Philippi are going to receive the same kind of opposition that Paul and Silas did. We know it's in the water, that it's a part of that culture. And so they're going to experience that clash of kingdoms. They're going to experience Their citizenship in heaven and their citizenship in Rome butting heads with one another. We know that this is what Paul experienced. We know it's what Silas experienced and he writes them here and says, remember where your true citizenship lies. And as you remember that, you will experience suffering, you will experience opposition and that suffering and opposition that you experience for following Jesus is a gift given to you by God. It is a gift given to you. The point for them and the point for us is this. If we are actually living in line with our true citizenship, it will lead to suffering and opposition. This is, friends, this is normal Christianity. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name. Rejoice and be glad. And then Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, he says, if the world hates me, do you think the world is not going to hate you? A servant is not better than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. And then in the book of 1 Peter, we see him, uh, the apostle Peter, who spent lots of time sitting under the teaching of Jesus, saying, don't. Think that when you suffer that something strange is happening, but rejoice and be glad that you get to participate in the sufferings of Christ. So we see all throughout the New Testament in the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the uh, the early apostles that they believe that suffering and experiencing opposition is a gift. And this is what we should expect. This is normal Christianity. Now, I, I can... Just assume that many of you are thinking to yourselves, okay, I'm not particularly encouraged by just about anything you've said here today. (laughs) And I get it. So maybe let's just spend the rest of our time sort of trying to answer this question together. How is it possible that suffering and opposition could be considered a gift? How can suffering and opposition... the the difficulty we experience as a result of following Jesus, how is it possible that that could be considered a gift? It's one thing just to say it's a gift, you should believe it's good. But it's another thing to actually figure out, okay, why in the world is this a good thing? How can Paul say that your suffering and the opposition you experience for following Jesus is a gift given to you by God that is no less valuable, it's no less of a gift than your salvation. How is that possible? I'll just suggest that suffering and opposition are a gift to us because they provide a unique opportunity to be with Jesus. Experiencing suffering and opposition are a un- provide a unique opportunity for us to experience communion with Jesus. Another way of saying it is that in our suffering, we have a shared experience with Jesus. Remember, the heart of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is that in Jesus, God himself took on human flesh. And he perfectly embodied the value system of the kingdom of God. As you look at the life of Jesus, you see the perfect example of what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. He perfectly loved his father with his whole heart, mind, and strength. He perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. Everything that the Old Testament law commands us to do, love God, love people, Jesus did that. He was the model citizen of the kingdom of God, and he experienced opposition for it. Jesus lived as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and he was executed by people who lived by the values of a different kingdom the religious leaders, the Roman Empire, he was put to death. We see the clash of these kingdoms sort of coming to its head, coming to its climax as Jesus is executed. He's executed for living by the value system of God's kingdom and for promoting the values and the citizenship that can be ours through him and through him alone. And so he's executed because of this. And this was, of course, not some strange thing that God had to try and frantically figure out what to do with. Jesus suffering and dying on the cross, this was a part of his plan. This was the way that he was bringing about our redemption, our salvation. He he rescued us through Jesus, living as a model citizen and experiencing suffering and opposition as a result of it. And as Jesus hung on the cross, what happened was he sat under the full weight of the justice of God, for all the ways that we have rebelled against God, for all the ways that we have not lived by the beliefs and the values and the ethos and the culture of the kingdom of God, for all the ways that we have not embodied our citizenship in heaven and the kingdom of God the way we're supposed to. Jesus sat underneath the full weight of the justice of God for that. In our place. And what that means is that Jesus suffered in a way that we will never begin to understand. Not just physically, certainly he suffered physically. You can get that from watching the, uh, the Passion of the Christ movie. It's one of the best sort of expressions of that in modern day. Certainly that was a, a, a kind of suffering that was very horrific. But there were plenty of people who were executed like that. There were plenty of people who were beaten worse than Jesus was. Who were tortured, maybe worse than Jesus was, who were crucified just like he was. But him sitting under the full weight of the justice of God for every person's rebellion and sin. He endured a kind of suffering that we will never understand. But on the flip side, because he suffered in that way, he intimately knows every aspect of our suffering. We will never understand. We can't get our heads into the kind of suffering he experienced. But the magnitude of his suffering that he experienced on the cross means he knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like better than we ever will to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God and suffer for it. He knows what we can never know. And so what what it means is that our suffering, the opposition we may experience for living as followers of Jesus, provides an opportunity for us to sit in the dirt with the one who knows what it's like to suffer. It provides an opportunity for us to sit in the dirt with the one, not just who knows generally what it's like to suffer, but the one who knows what it's like to suffer for us. And through our suffering, do you see what happens? It provides an opportunity for us to have a closer relationship with the one who suffered for us, And so even the suffering and the opposition that we experience, God uses them for our good. Do you see the pattern in the book of Philippians? We see this over and over and over again. God is able to take even the worst circumstances and make them turn out for our good. And so it's not just, you know, in spite of all those bad things that happen to you, Jesus is still going to be close to you anyways no it's in the midst of experiencing those sufferings and that opposition that we get a unique kind of communion with jesus that we cannot have when things are going well and so suffering and our opposition provides an opportunity for us to experience something of our relationship with christ that we cannot otherwise experience and so we can view it as a gift please understand i'm not saying suffering is fun I'm not saying we ought to look for suffering. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. You you should feel happy about suffering. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is we have a God who's able to take even the worst kind of suffering and make it turn out for our good. We know it's true because of what we see in the cross, and we know it's true because Paul tells us right here. Your suffering is a gift. So our suffering provides a unique opportunity to be with Jesus but also our suffering and the opposition we face provide a unique opportunity for God to work through us. We know from history that the early church experienced a whole lot of opposition for their beliefs. The Roman Empire was as pluralistic as our society is, in some ways more. And the early followers of Jesus did not have a rosy path, you know, through daisies, to the other side. They experienced suffering and opposition and uh, certainly some of them would have uh, given up their faith along that journey but many of them did not. One of the examples of the way we see Christians in the early church living as citizens of the kingdom of God is in relationship to, uh, to sex, sexuality things like this. It was said of the early church that those Christians, they're generous with their money, but they're stingy with their sexuality. And the opposite was true of the pagans, that is those who are not Jesus followers. They were stingy with their money, but they would sleep with just about anybody. And that was one of the differences in the value system of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Rome. And so there was a sort of conflict of kingdoms here. And certainly, there were some Jesus followers who experienced suffering and opposition because of what they believe about sexuality and, uh, and sex within the way God has designed it. And certainly, we will experience the same kind of opposition to some degree as well. There were some who, when they came in contact with these weird Christians who believed these strange things that weren't just viewed as, as strange, but viewed as actually harmful to society, when they came in contact with these kind of people, Certainly, some of those folks were, uh, in, became more entrenched in their opposition. They became more calloused, and they continued the, the persecution. They continued the uh, opposition of those Jesus followers. But we also know that many of them were compelled by what they saw. The gospel in the first century did not explode into the Roman Empire by the early church saying, you know, we need to relax on some of these beliefs and make the gospel a little bit more palatable to the culture around us. That way people will want to become Christians. If we just say, well, the sexuality thing, that's kind of, you know, that's an optional thing. You don't really have to believe that. The early church did not explode because they uh, relaxed on those principles, because they gave up their convictions, because they sort of just blended into the culture around them. The gospel went forward because they were committed to those convictions. And as people came in contact with them, what they saw was an example of a person who's been changed by God, a person who is living this new life, this new citizenship as a part of a completely different kind of kingdom. And some people were uh, entrenched in their opposition. And other people said, I don't understand what's wrong with you. And it's compelling. You don't view sexuality the way I do, and yet there's a contentedness that you seem to have in being stingy with your sexuality that I can't find sleeping with everybody I can find. And so there was something about the way that they lived that was compelling, and God used their convictions, them living as these members of the the kingdom of God, God used that to bring other people to the faith. And so the Holy Spirit worked through them and other people became attracted to when they saw the gospel at work and they got to have conversations about it. They were attracted to the message of the gospel through it and so it provided a unique opportunity that they wouldn't have had if they just compromised. If they just said, well, we're just gonna, you know, sort of be a bland, vanilla Christianity and what we believe so that other people won't be mad at us. If they would have done that, none of those opportunities would have come about. Those would have all been wasted. And yet we know that they didn't waste them. That they lived as faithful citizens of the kingdom of God. They experienced suffering and opposition. And sometimes it was just suffering and opposition. And sometimes God used those who were opposing them. God drew them to himself through the lives of those people. And so we know the same thing is true for us here today. That as we think about our suffering and our opposition, sure we can become angry. Sure we can become bitter we can look at culture and we can throw up our hands and we can complain and we can say we wish it was the way it was 25, 30, 50 years ago and we can just become more angry, bitter people that offer nothing of any importance to anybody. Or we can be the kind of people who can look into the face of someone who is opposing us for our beliefs and we can love them well. And we can believe that God can take even... A, a, screwed up, a screwed up life like mine, a life that is as broken as mine and as broken as yours, he can still use that to bring people to himself. And so we see that our suffering can be an opportunity for us to experience deeper relationship and communion with Jesus. And our suffering and our opposition can be one of the tools that God uses to bring other people to faith. And it doesn't happen because people see us and think that we're so great It happens when they look at our lives and they don't understand it apart from a gospel explanation. And so this is what is true. Our suffering provides a unique opportunity to be with Jesus. It provides a unique opportunity for God to work through us. When we remember where our true citizenship lies, we will receive suffering and opposition as a gift. We do this because Suffering and opposition, as we've briefly mentioned, has a special place in God's plan. Suffering and opposition is at the heart of God's rescue plan for his people. We see Jesus embodied the values of God's kingdom and he suffered for it. And it was his suffering that led to our ultimate good. And as we come to the communion table today, as we do each week, we get to remember and celebrate We get to receive the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus and be reminded that he suffered. That he knows what it's like to experience suffering and opposition and not just that he suffered but that he suffered for us. And so we get to come forward and receive that and celebrate that and sing songs of thanksgiving and praise to God as a result of that. Suffering and opposition are a gift given to us by God. Do we have the spiritual eyes to see that. I'd like to invite you to take a few moments of silent confession and reflection as we come to the communion table today.